We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Benvenuti su Fred Film Radio, the Festival Insider. This is Fred Film Radio, I'm Eddie Bertotti. Clémence Ferri-Latour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Tantanni sono senza un sacchino, hanno scioccato. Alain Bacon for Fred Film Radio. Marco Mamaragan. Fred, Fred, the Festival Experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Micucci. We've got lots of stuff coming at you over the next hour, including interviews with filmmakers Ugis Olte from Latvia and Alexandra Terpinska from Poland, both of whom presented films at this year's edition of Tallinn Black Nights. We'll also be celebrating the legacy of one of the greatest American film actresses of all time, Catherine Hepburn, and I'll be coming at you with some more recommendations for cinephile viewings in our regular conclusive segment, Popcorn Classics. I also wanted to remind you that you can check out more of our interviews from the European Film Promotion Showcase of Female Filmmakers from Europe at the Sydney Film Festival, formerly known as Europe. Voices of Women in Film on fred.fm forward slash UK. And that we'll have more interviews from the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam coming soon. And of course, we're also covering the Torino Film Festival in Italy, which kicked off on November 26th. Without further ado, let's begin our show. And my suggestion for you, as usual, is to fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. Joining us at this time on the BFT is director Ugis Alta, whose new film Upurga was screened at Tallinn Black Nights this year. Ugis, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, it's great to have you. Uh, Ugis, let's get right into it. Obviously, we're going to be talking about your, your new film. But first off, uh, I'd like to go back. This is the first time we talk, so I'd like to know a little bit more about you. I was reading up a bit, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a background in journalism. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's what I uh, decided to do after finishing high school. Then I quit almost before the finish line uh, to, to start doing other things, including... Uh, directing tv documentaries and stuff like that and then uh two years ago just to make my life uh, more interesting again i returned to to study so i'm also a journalism student right now and pro- uh, hopefully I, w- I will graduate uh, in 2022 <laughs> hopefully <laughs> well i wish you all the best of that and it's great that you went back to that but uh just to get back to kind of your 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 background in journalism how did that translate into your eventual entrance into the world of filmmaking? Or were movies always a big part of your life? Subconsciously. Uh, well, well, you know that uh, uh, in the 90s, th- there was this uh, phenomenon which was called uh, pirated uh, movies uh, two-in-one. Like, like you, you can rent out this three-hour-long... Uh, you could rent out, not now. You could rent out this uh, three-hour-long VHS tape, which usually had uh, two random uh, movies and some music videos in the end. And uh, there were like shops where you can pay money, what? get whatever you want, and then you probably 
you use the weekend to watch them and then you return them. And that's how we, we got exposed to Western cinema because, uh, oh, okay. uh <laughs> and but 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 the fun fun thing was that uh, usually all those films were were dubbed by the same uh guy I know about that it. trend yeah <laughs> yeah and he he did it live so so we rarely uh, heard uh, like like original sound yeah. Uh, and that was like a discovery later when you when you could could get access to to like proper archives of uh, history of cinema you can uh, start watching all over because now you can hear the original sound and and learn how the sound can be used uh, in film so what kind of movies were you watching in these in these tapes uh it was everything really everything like ah. like the the top thing was all those action uh, movies with schwarzenegger and stallone but uh, like the probably the biggest impact on me was omen uh, we watched uh, all three parts in the same night, and uh, it was four o'clock in the morning, and and we were doing in this in like in the first floor of the building, and suddenly there's like the curtain moves and the hand comes into the room. Uh-huh. Uh, it was our friend who was just passing by late at night and decided to just uh, scare us, not knowing that we are watching like one of the horrifying uh, horror movies of all time. Right. So that that was something that uh, saved in my operating system. Uh, did memories of that view and experience influence your new film, uh, making your new film? Because this is kind of your debut in the horror uh, genre. No, but I, I have never been uh, like somebody who's uh, paying too much attention to horror movies. I, I really have uh, such a fragile nervous system. Once I was watching Conjuring, I, I believe it was, and it was such an intense experience that I had to stop, go to Wikipedia, uh, read the plot just to know what happens. Uh, <laughs> and then I could proceed because, because uh, I, 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 happen to dissolve into inside the movie quite easily and it's it can be intense and also with this film it, it was never intention to go some specific genre path uh, it was just um, uh, attempt to reinterpret and or enrich with something mythological uh, the the life experience that i have i have had when i was like spending much time in the woods and by uh-huh. the rivers yeah you just always know that there is something more, something more. And, and I wanted to show this something more uh, in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, The Conjuring is is a pretty frightening film. I, I, I'll give you that one. Uh, but this film kind of expands on uh, on the horror genre. I mean, I, I, I felt like it was a horror genre, but also sometimes it reminded me of the works of Werner Herzog, you know, very physical uh, exploration of wilderness. But we'll get into that a, a little in a little bit because it's interesting what you said. You don't like to, or you you find that horror movies or watching horror movies can be a, an intense experience, a frightening experience of that. But your previous documentary was was shot in uh, in North Korea, right? Yes, that's true. Isn't that isn't there something frightening about that experience? The lucky, lucky thing is that uh, that uh, I I got thrown into this uh, adventure quite quickly, and and I I'm not the guy who reads news and and tries to uh, build the view of the world on on things that are written online. <laughs> so so I had pretty little preconceptions and uh we uh, then when we started to prepare for for this trip uh, 
we consciously decided that we shouldn't uh, go the same path as as other Western filmmakers doing documentaries about uh, North Korea. Uh, and the choice was to just show what uh, we observe, like being there, like mm-hmm. not not making any comments or judgments. And then maybe to just add a layer of playfulness, uh, interpreting uh, those, those, those observations for the big screen. And that's it. And then somehow it, it, it was part of the formula why this film, which is called Liberation Day, uh, resonated so well to the people because they, on one side, they felt relieved that they don't have this uh, heavy load of uh, political or geopolitical uh, bullshit to deal with. And on, on the second hand, in different country, cultures, especially in USA, people were uh, confused because they didn't know how to approach it. Like, is it, is it uh, pro or against or what? What is it? Uh, and th- this, this is really delightful for me because, because, uh, we made something that is, uh, well, maybe out of the ordinary box regarding this certain topic. Well, while you were making these documentaries and in your previous experiences, did you always think that you would eventually want to, uh, direct fiction works? Absolutely. It's just, just, uh, another, uh, like, like way of expressing yourself. Mm. My everyday, everyday gymnastics is, is making a documentary TV series for television because, uh, I believe it's still the super strong medium. Uh, you get huge audiences and, and the beautiful thing is that, um, you, you, you can live very intense cycle of production. It's in two weeks, you, you, you do the whole thing, invent the story, research it, shoot it, edit it and, and broadcast. And, uh, it's a really, really nice life enriching, uh, uh, thing. You just experience a lot. Then, if you find some some story that uh, lingers with you and and resonates more and more, then probably you will make a documentary. But I'm really bad at this. I, I ideas don't come to me that easily. Um, yeah. And then, if something really sticks and you really uh, want to spend uh, at least uh, four years of your life uh, investigating the surge, then you do a fiction film. This is my first because it's, as you know, uh, nobody trusts a guy who doesn't have a previous film, but it's impossible to make the f- uh, previous film if you haven't made the first. Like, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, um, magic cycle. So, so I, I, I had done some, some music videos, which is basically the same, the same uh, t- tool set, only, only less responsibility. And, this was also something that that uh, convinced people that they can trust me with their money to make uh, this story. We're going to take a short break, but stay tuned because we'll be back for more in a moment. Fred. Back with Ugis Olta, director of a new Latvian horror flick, Upurga. Ugis, are there any types of stories that you feel particularly drawn to? Yeah, I always enjoy uh, uh, stories that leave a lot for my own interpretation. Uh, I, I like to digest uh, or, or 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 look at different angles to the things that film has given me. Uh, I, I never enjoy films that uh, explain mysteries. Yeah, uh, it, it's just boring. Mysteries are much more, much more interesting when you uh, can w- work with them for a long time. And also, uh, I, 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 I'm totally not a fan of, uh, 
what I want to call the new way of social realism. I always feel that cinema is such a great uh, like uh, art that it can make uh, tell about things that are larger than life. Uh, and if you want to, to, to talk about things that are as large as life, then you make documentaries. Why do you have to <laughs> invent fiction about things that you can film in reality? Uh, fiction is good for fil filming the unreal. Right. So you don't like it when a film tries to look like a documentary? Uh, no, I, 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 it's about su subject matter. Like, like I, I don't uh, enjoy films that uh, uh, try to comment, uh, do a comment on on uh, on society and politics stuff like that. It's just not interesting for me. All right. Oh, well, so let's talk about uh, the new film. It's called Upurga. Am I pronouncing the title right? You you cannot uh, spell it wrong. Of course, it's right. <laughs> Upurga. Okay, so what does it mean? What does the what does the word mean? It's an invented place name, and it uh -huh. uh, it, uh, um, it it takes two words from different different languages. Upe is a river in uh, Latvian, and Urga is river in Livonian which is like a small, almost extinct nation that inhabits the same area as, as, as Latvians do. And uh, we just connected those two words in, to make one. Uh, and when we, we heard it for the first time from our own uh, mouth, uh, it sounded energetic enough to, to have the, the potential to, to be uh, the title of the film. Right. And, and the second thing that it's... You can you can use it in in any culture. It's yeah. always right. It's never wrong. And so let me just tell our listeners a little bit about what the story of the film is. You know, it's a and very very briefly, I guess. But it's about uh, a, a film crew, a small film crew that goes to these woods uh, to uh, kind of shoot a, uh, a commercial for vegetarian sausages. But once they get there, all sorts of crazy things happen. And uh, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but uh, what was the starting point for you? Uh, was there was there anything in particular that inspired this film? Yeah, there 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 was one particular event uh, that uh, when I I suddenly got sh like like scared uh, frightened by a bunch of wild boars uh, that I accidentally met in a forest. Uh, and uh, it triggered such an intense uh, wave of confusion and disorientation that I wanted to to kind of think about this more. Why do I feel like this? Um, I, I'm in a forest that I know really well, but suddenly I feel like completely lost. And all those subconscious, mythological and uh, archetypical things are bubbling up in, in, in a great intensity. Mm. So I, I wanted to, to, uh, make a story about a guy who experiences such a subjective and really intense internal adventure in, in a situation that is quite, uh, normal or mundane and happens in, in a normal Latvian forest, which I know really well from my childhood because I grew up in a, in a countryside. Well, I think it's also pretty impressive when a horror taps into the fears that are very real, you know. And I think some of the scariest moments in my life came from, uh, I guess, blackouts that I had from maybe too much alcohol intake or use of various substances that shall remain nameless for the purpose of this show. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> but all that to say that despite this film's occasional madness and psychedelia, this film does have a core that really seems to tap on 
common experiences that everybody can understand. Well, that's what I aim for. And the, just before the premiere in Tallinn, uh, I spoke to um, my fellow friend and the cinematographer of another film uh, that was premiering in Tallinn. And he said that uh, he, he felt uh, really uh, frightened just at the moment when he suddenly didn't hear the the sound of a river that he was following along uh, and then some small critter or <laughs> or mouse was was doing making some noise nearby him and for him it was like the biggest threat that he can experience in this situation and i thought that well if this guy has the same experience that I, as i have then probably we will find enough uh, for this movie to travel well What was it like to to shoot a film there in this wild river valley? Uh it seems like shooting in a place like that would require a certain level of physical commitment too. The the method is the same as as we use for shooting uh, TV documentaries. We we do a lot of travel uh tra- travel series and then well everything you you need need to know is how to dress properly for uh Baltic weather. Yeah. And uh that's one of the lines we, in the we, movie, we, right? Yeah. We, we we chose to chose to um we chose to shoot uh, with natural light and uh and in a very brief period because of, this is like super micro budget film. We we shoot it in 17 days. Uh and that meant uh traveling light. Like our crew is uh, just the minimum and and uh we used super uh, light equipment. This is probably one of the first films that I know that is shot with uh, Sony Alpha 7S uh, basically a photo camera. Mm. But uh, that that was the set of uh, like restrictions that we we put on ourselves and and uh, just uh, lived to see if it's possible and it, it appeared that it's quite doable. Does it help to put restrict restrictions on yourself? Does it fuel creativity? Yeah, you just you just know that uh, okay, the schedule says uh, four or to five scenes a day and that means that you cannot uh, get to um uh, you, you cannot second guess yourself. You just have to go with the instincts and and uh, make it happen otherwise uh, there will be holes in the in the footage. Right. That you will never that you will never be able to shoot again because also also the nature in the autumn Baltic nat- autumn changes really quickly and when we started we had the ten hours of of uh, sunlight when we ended we had seven hours of sunlight and and if you just make some mistakes and have to plan additional shooting days then you 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 have to somehow deal with uh, I don't know that there is not enough uh, daylight left. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is something that that was quite stressful and also this fucking covid thing uh, after f- the first three days uh, suddenly we realized that one of our crew members is has been a contact person oh. and if 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 covid stopped the production it would it would have to stop for a whole year because because uh, the weather changes and and the nature changes and we cannot get what we intended to do so luckily only this guy got sick and he he was replaced for some time but uh, all others um were safe probably yeah. of the fresh air that were breathing during the shoot let me tell you then uh you shot the film for 17 days how important was uh post production then how long did that process take you well it was quite quite fast uh 
uh, I, I always enjoy this uh, collective uh, work component of fiction film. Editor has a uh, homework to do before we meet for the first time. Sound designer has the wor- homework to do bef- before we meet for the first time. And then we start to uh, do these intense sessions to, to shape things maybe more towards what I have intended or, 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 or to combine our visions and make something new. Uh, we started, started editing in, in, in March. We finished in uh, May. So. Oh. It was maybe maybe ten or twelve days of of uh, being together in the same room. Right. Uh, it wasn't that fast with the sound because uh, this particular film has really intense uh, audio world, and and that took a much more uh, effort to to build. Uh, just as a final question, because we have run out <laughs> run out of time, but you, you, we talked a bit about uh, messages a movie can carry and how you are kind of suspicious of uh, social realism and films that try to tell you what to think. Do you expect that audiences will try to attach meanings uh, to this movie, and uh, how do you feel about that? Of course, they they should attach meanings to this film, but but uh, the thing is that they have to be subjective meanings. Uh, you know the the the, the last piece of a, in a chain of a movie production is is the viewer and the best thing that can happen is that the film gives enough impulse for the viewer to to come up with his own interpretations and to think his own thoughts not to just uh, get the message well packed uh, with a red ribbon on top and and just open it and consume Right. That, that, we always feel happier when, when we, we, we also have done a bit of work, uh, like, like deciphering the film. Yeah. It's, it always stays longer if, if you have to commit to the, to the coming up with the meaning. All right. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for the conversation. Red Film Radio. Cinephile, welcome to the segment of the show that I like to call Celluloid Heroes. This is a regular two-part segment where each week I talk about a person who left an indelible mark on the history of cinema. For this week, I'm going to step in front of the camera to talk about one of the most charismatic leading American actors of the 20th century, Catherine Hepburn, the unlikely Hollywood star who revolutionized women in film with their unparalleled charisma, wit, beauty, and incredible talents. Catherine Hepburn was one of the most groundbreaking and innovative lead actresses of the golden age of Hollywood. Along with a few of her contemporaries, including Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich, she helped shatter preconceived notions of what women should behave like on and off the set. She was also incredibly versatile and starred in several top-rate productions across various genres. Hepburn was born of a wealthy family in 1907. Her father was a successful surgeon and her mother was a leader in the women's suffrage movement. From early childhood, she developed a predilection for both intellectual development and athleticism. In fact, you could say that she took on acting with a mix of fiery enthusiasm and uncompromising ambition. After her first successes in Broadway in the 1920s, she was offered her first Hollywood contract by RKO Pictures. While she sporadically continued to act on the stage, she would primarily consider herself a film actress from there on. In 1933, she won the first of her many Oscars for her portrayal of an aspiring actress in only her third picture, Morning Glory. 
Hepburn impressed with her unmatched charisma, her distinctive speech pattern, quirky mannerisms, and her tomboyish beauty. Off the screen, she remained quite independent. She exerted great creative freedom in her projects and great control over the trajectory of her career. In fact, after a string of box office flops in the 30s, with the exception of the beloved Bringing Up Baby from 1938, she returned to Broadway to play the lead in the Philadelphia story. She bought the screen rights for the play and produced the 1940 film version, which unquestionably revived her film career and is regarded a quintessential screwball comedy. In 1942, she began a much talked about enduring intimate relationship with Spencer Tracy, her co-star on Woman of the Year. The two would also form a great partnership on screen and appeared in a number of memorable movies together, including the screwball comedy Adam's Rib from 1949 and Tracy's final film, the socially conscious drama on racial prejudice Guess Who's Coming to Dinner from 1967. Before then... Hepburn had suspended her acting to look after Tracy through what turned out to be his final illness. He died shortly after completing the picture, which would earn both actors an Academy Award. Hepburn would actually win two more Oscars, one for 1968's The Lion in Winter and the other for On Golden Pond from 1981. With her four wins, she retains the record for most Best Actress Oscars won, and with her 12 nominations overall, she set a record that stood until 2003. Aside from cinema and theatre, Hepburn embraced television and eventually won an Emmy for her work opposite Laurence Olivier in Love Among the Ruins, which reunited her with her favourite director, George Cooker. At this point, her prolific output began to wane down due to a progressive neurological disease. Her last film was Love Affair from 1994. She died in 2003. Throughout her career, she received many accolades and in 1999, the American Film Institute named her the top female American screen legend of all time. Later in the show, I will attempt the arduous task of choosing three films that I feel best represent her and would especially serve as a great starting point for anyone looking to dig deep into her filmography. But for now, stay tuned for more film conversation on this very episode of The Big Fred Tuesday. Fred Film Radio. Joining us at this time is filmmaker Alexandra Terpinska. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, we're going to be talking about your film, Other People, presented at uh, Tallinn Black Nights. I understand that it's based on a be- best-selling novel. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about this novel, first off? Yes, it's based on a novel uh, with the same title, Other People. Uh-huh. And the novel is written uh, by a very talented and uh, very famous Polish author, Dorota Maslowska. And what you should know that she has very... She developed very certain language um, and... Especially with this book, this book is all written in verses. So mm. basically, it's a poem, or as you may say, it's a rap lyrics uh, from the beginning to the end. It's like uh, lyrics, and it has rhymes and it has rhythm. So it was quite challenging. <laughs> Right, right. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, obviously, we'll be getting into all that a little later on. But first, I'm curious to find out how your journey began, because I understand that uh, you also had much to do with the shaping of the actual uh, screenplay for this adaptation. So can you tell us about how you began this journey? 
So a funny thing was that we met with Dorota in Jacuzzi at some film festival, mm. and we kind of, you know, chat about the weird stuff. And then a few months after that, uh, she sent me her book and asked me if I want to read it. And I was like, yeah, I can read your book, of course, but like what, like give you some notes or what? And she was like, no, like filming it. And so, wow, that's amazing. Uh, and then I've got the manuscript. And then I read it and then I was like, oh my God, how I'm going to do the film out of this? Because, you know, when I wrote, uh, when I read it, it was like, it's beautifully, beautifully written, but still, uh, it's very not filmable. But then she asked me to make, um, something like short, uh, video material, uh, for the book promotion, we call it book trailer, uh, to mm. sell the book better. And then we started to kind of discover the ways how we can uh, get into the world of the characters and um, transfer the lyrics uh, to the songs. And uh, it was a very interesting experience. And we also got work together with Dorota. Uh, so I asked her, like, give me three months and I'm going to try to write a script. And I'm going to see what happens next because I don't want to spoil it because it's a very good book. Mm -hmm. And yeah, after three months of uh, thinking how to uh, make this filmable and how to m make this poem to a more like a story, but not changing the words because, you know, I, I'm, she has very unique language. So it's not like I can, uh, write some words even in, in dialogues or in, in uh, lyrics of the songs. It's everything from the book. I only could kind of mix uh, the characters or uh, figure out the situations in which they're rapping or in which they're playing or figure out all those weird things like the scene with heart or something. And after this three months of working on the script, I knew that it's going to work at least on a script level. And then we started a long trip of preparation to this film with many, many challenges uh, when we figured out how to translate this to the uh, cinematic language and uh, how to make all those uh, things that are done there. <laughs> but what were the things that, so when you, when you first read it, this novel or I, I, I would also define it an epic poem, I guess. Yes. Uh, what were the things that you personally connected with about uh, this original work? I was thinking just what this book is about for me. I mean, what are the important subjects? Because the book has many plots and uh, some of them are bigger or uh, in a book and there are much more there. So it was uh, more about uh, make, it, uh, make it the book shorter. So... Uh, my main thing was like, what is this, what is in this book for me? And the most important thing and most, the thing that moved me uh, the most was um, this idea that people don't see each other and they don't love each other and the hate is circulating and uh, they have uh, no background even to take this long love from 
like from where because they have holes in their hearts so uh basically that lack of love was uh, for me the most striking thing in a book and this is what i wanted to also show in the movie yeah lack of love lack of empathy uh, yes. all that stuff mm-hmm. yeah well okay so um music is obviously very important in this film because we talked about uh this the the, the novel being written in poetry form but music then uh, is another thing as well so can you talk a little bit about this part of the process i mean what came first was it the beats that helped shape the 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 film was it the other way around how did that work Mm, yeah, so the first thing was uh, the script and we already had like, I don't know how many exactly because it, it's changed on the, on the way also, but something like between 30 and 40 uh, songs in the script already. And then we started to work on the music because uh, the lyrics were already there. And working on the music was like, um, also it took a long time and it was a huge task with this film because uh, every single um, song in this film has its own emotions and its own feeling. And this uh, this emotion, this feeling and this character of the song should uh, match to the uh, dramaturgy of the film and drama line to, of the film. So it should be exactly uh, exaggerating emotions that are in this place in a film and uh, helping the characters. And, you know, that it should also have this uh, uh, role as a film music, right? So it's not like let's take some beat. We just ha- we had to take a beat that should help uh, the character and the the, the, the storytelling in this particular moment. So I talk a lot about the, <laughs> the emotions and this kind of stuff to the beat maker, and he was uh, composing this. And sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree, sometimes we start work again. So it took a uh, really long time. I, I mean, uh, maybe two, three months to make the first version of the beats. Then we record the lyrics to the beats. Then it appears it's very difficult with these lyrics. Uh, so Dorota actually helped us with this uh, because she hear her mm, lyrics very good and she can sometimes really put uh, the lyrics on a beat in a very certain specific way, which is like great. And sometimes she can adjust, she could adjust a bit uh, her lyrics to the beat. So it was also an advantage to have a living author <laughs> with you. And then uh, when we had already like pilot version, the actors learned the, uh, those songs and then they played or the, they wrapped the, the songs live on the set, uh, having like small earphones, earplugs in, a, in their ears where they're hearing the beat so that we could record sound. So it's quite complicated, but the point was to, uh, was to have them acting uh, and singing in the same time, uh, not lip syncing the songs, just to uh, have the emotions from the set, which I think went great. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with the second part of our chat on other people from Tallinn Black Knights in a moment. Fred. 
We're back on the Big Fred Tuesday with filmmaker Alexandra Terpinska talking about her film Other People. And before the break, Alexandra, you talked about the cast having to be able to do both, to act and also perform the songs. So it sounds like it would be difficult to find the right people who could do both. Uh, was it difficult? It was a huge challenge. It was a huge challenge and it took us, the casting took us like maybe six months. Uh, we are... We cast almost everyone in Poland, I guess. <laughs> but, um, the thing is, we, at every casting, we ask the actresses and actors, uh, to rap one song, one piece we already have, like, for the casting, uh, and to have, to, to play some dialogue, uh, scene, because, I don't know if you can hear this, but also in the dialogue scene, they have the scenes, they have also certain rhythm and they have rhymes. And even if they just speak, uh, it should uh, be in this discipline of rhythm and rhymes. So uh, there's so much that I want to ask you. One of the things that I realized, I mean, I was just looking up uh, stuff about you. You actually have a background in, in making music videos. And I was wondering whether that helped you in making uh, other other people. I don't think so, because I <laughs> I did maybe two or three music videos, which is uh, which is not much like for the music video maker. Um and making music videos is quite popular here in Poland because that's uh, one thing where you can do almost everything. No, it's they don't pay you, but you can uh, do your artistic work. So people like to, you know, uh, especially you are student, then it's a chance, it's opportunity to make something on your way and uh, somehow, you know, show your ideas. I, I don't think making music videos helped me with this one, no. There is lots of many experience that helped me, but not exactly this one. Because um, I don't treat this as a music video and I, it's, it's very precise uh, where what should be. So in a music video, not everything is usual that precise. You just uh, should this, should that, more or less you know where what should be and then you in editing you can really go crazy and with this film was completely opposite because we rehearsed this we sometimes edited rehearsals and we knew exactly what should be where exactly in the film and um even you know when you have like in one song you have 10 scenes and in every scene you have certain text to say you know you cannot change this part and put it someone somewhere else so it had to be planned in advance yeah. uh, so it was for me it was more like a process of uh uh, making like a normal feature film uh, because uh, because you know if I can just be a little uh, nerdy for a second you know I was thinking of <laughs> while I was watching it other uh, works that maybe it could it could have been reminding me of and I was thinking of Jacques Demy and his melodramas from the 60s I was thinking of Requiem for a Dream also uh, Darren Aronofsky I was thinking mm-hmm. of uh, 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 Under Milkwood actually you know some adaptations of Dylan Thomas's poem that could have been similar did you were you looking at some works that perhaps served as uh, inspirations or, or even reference points for, for other people? We had lots of inspiration, lots of uh, uh, references. Uh, I think the strongest one was La Haine uh, by Kasowitz. 
and maybe the train spotting <laughs> uh, in a in a way of energy of this. But we uh, also, for example, we watched Les Misérables, uh, the musical. This was a huge inspiration because they also uh, perform the songs on the set with this uh, small earplugs in the ears, which was like technical inspiration for us. And we knew that if you want to have like great acting on the set uh, and then in a the film, then you, you have to really perform this live, not like a lip sync thing. So uh, we, because it was kind of musical, but not a normal one, we watched a lot of musical, like from her to, uh, I don't know, La La Land, <laughs> you know, like yeah. everything to see what, uh, what role have the songs in those kind of films and how many songs you can take as a viewer, for example. So we constantly watch some uh, films uh, in the process of pre-production and then it somehow, I mean, it was usually I was doing this with my DP and we talk it through like on which levels it was, it can be an inspiration for us, uh, because it was so many levels with this film. I mean, it was strong level of the music, but also of the visual and acting and, you know, form. So, yeah, yeah. So it was also. Well, talking about the visuals also, I was curious about one thing, because the film begins with, I guess, a, a disclaimer, kind of a warning <laughs> for the spectator that the images they're about to see may be shocking or disturbing. And I was wondering, uh, why did you feel it was uh, necessary to include that at the start of the movie? Uh, we thought a long, um, a long time if to put this into the film or not, but then we decided that that really some scenes can be disturbing and we don't want to feel that people at the end, you know, have were somehow touched because the the thing is you cannot read this literally. You have to think about this as some as an art as an art. And because it's it should it so in a natural manner, then we don't want to hurt people. If and if you sometimes if you suffer at some trauma maybe it's better for you not to trigger yourself, you know, and it's just because of the respect for the people. It's not that we think it's that hard, uh, because I so much harder films, but it's just as a kind of uh, respect gesture to the people that suffer traumas of different kind, and it can be triggering uh, for some people. Are you, are you kind of maybe concerned that some people might see this as controversial too? I wouldn't say... It bothered me in a way, I mean, controversial is fine in a way if it asks question and if in a way when it starts discussion, right? right? Because we did it to ask some question and start some discussions and not just to say this is how the world looks like and we accept it. We don't accept it. That's why we did the film. Right. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, Alexandra, we've run out of time, but I really appreciated you taking the time to, sh to talk with us about other people. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot for this conversation. 
It was a pleasure. Fred. Cinephile, earlier in the show, I gave a brief summary of the intense, prolific and legendary life and work of one of the greatest American film actresses of all time, Catherine Hepburn. Now I will attempt to choose three films from her incredible body of work, which traversed several decades and included some of the greatest Hollywood productions of that period. It went from screwball comedies to period dramas to a stint in action adventure with the African Queen, which, spoiler alert, is not one of the three movies I've chosen, but that you should watch anyways if you have haven't because it's absolutely awesome anyways all that to say that to choose highlights from a stellar career like the one that Catherine Hepburn had is absolute madness but I will say this before I begin the thing that I absolutely love is that Hepburn remained absolutely contemporary no matter what year the film in question was released in fact very often she was ahead of her time And she could work within a traditionalist setting, an actor's studio showcase, I mean, whatever. I mean, her versatility was enduring and amazing. And when you watch her on the screen in a film from the 30s or the 40s or whatever, you really do get that sense that Catherine Hepburn could have led just about any modern production of these times, and that in fact, the real question would have been, would even the best Hollywood production of today have been up to standards high enough for the one and only Catherine Hepburn? But without getting too stuck into this intro, let me just remind you that this list does not aim to necessarily choose either her best performances or the best movies that she was in. These following three movies aim to just give an idea of the essence of Catherine Hepburn and what she was able to accomplish in her groundbreaking body of work. But they are especially for those listening who may not be familiar with her performances and who are looking for a way in, a starting point for a deeper exploration of her work. Because after all... That's what it's all about for me. You know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to get to do this, but I love movies, and I want as many people as possible to love movies also. Crazy thing, right? Anyway, so I can't help but begin with The Philadelphia Story from 1940. I believe that this film represents Catherine Hepburn at her best, and also comes very close to representing that larger-than-life Hepburn persona in front of the screen and behind the screen. It was directed by George Cooker and also stars Cary Grant and James Stewart at their absolute best. The story behind it is equally remarkable and deserves an honourable mention. After a string of box office flops and in spite of the success of the 1938 picture Bringing Up Baby and Holiday too, released on the same year, Catherine Hepburn was placed on an infamous list of actors labelled as box office poison by some unmerciful newspaper. Hepburn responded by making a Broadway comeback and successfully played the lead in a production called The Philadelphia Story, which she bought the screen rights to and that eventually would become her comeback vehicle. And the rest is history. And while we're on the topic of screwball comedies, earlier I talked about Hepburn's creative partnership with her off-screen partner, uh, Spencer Tracy, which brought about nine on-screen collaborations and culminated with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. But of the nine movies they worked on together, I strongly believe the best of these is Adam's Rib from 1949, which finds them playing a couple of married lawyers on opposing sides of a case. The setup leads to all sorts of ingenious twists and gags, and on top of showcasing the two's amazing chemistry, Adam's Rib, under the direction again of George Cooker, may even be the hands-down best battle of the sexist comedy ever made. Watch it if you don't believe me. 
But moving on, there's no denying that Catherine Hepburn was just as great in melodramas as she was great in comedies. And as a side note, like I said, she even had a stint at action-adventure with the African Queen from 1951. And that isn't half bad now, is it? But wanting to also celebrate Catherine Hepburn's dramatic side, I decided to choose the sometimes overlooked 1962 film Long Day's Journey into the Night, where she takes on the coveted role of Mary Tyrone in Sidney Lumet's adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's great American play of the same name about a disintegrating family and drug addiction. What is striking is how even within this more modern setting, Hepburn shows that she is a versatile and superb tragedienne, and her bravura performance earned her the ninth Oscar nomination of her career, which she didn't win because it would have been kind of ridiculous. It's like Juventus winning nine league titles in a row, or Hamilton making the Grand Prix Championship a bit of a joke. Nonetheless, my point is, it's time to rediscover the amazing Catherine Hepburn, maybe the best film actress of all time. We'll be right back for more BFT after this. Red Film Radio. Cinephile. Well, would you look at that? We've reached the end of yet another show. And as if those Catherine Hepburn recommendations were not enough, it's time for our regular and long-lasting conclusive segment of recommendations for cinephile viewing. This segment I like to call Popcorn Classics and the film I choose for it are mostly random. Many of them are movies that I feel are not talked about as well or as much as they should be or even not talked about at all. The great Pedro Almodovar's new film, Parallel Mothers, is gaining traction at various movie houses around the world after getting its premiere in Venice earlier this year. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to highlight what is maybe one of his more underappreciated five-star movie. Bad Education from 2004 is a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age story about the sexual awakening of two young children, but also an examination of childhood trauma and the suppression of homosexuality in Spain in the midst of Franco era, but also beyond. The film features that same lyrical and colourful style that the director is known for, but occasionally it also becomes engulfed by passionate violence, bitterness and anger. The cast does a great job as well, and this is really one of the great performances by Gael Garcia Bernal, who was hot property at the time and who showcased his versatility in this movie. For these reasons and more, I would encourage you to either discover or rediscover 2004's Bad Education by Pedro Almodovar, one of his most daring and darkest works indeed. I will give it five bags of popcorn and five cups of soda. And that's all for this episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. Join me again next week for more cinephile explorations and conversation on a new episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. Don't forget to also check out more of our content across our various channels and in multiple languages as well. Till the next time, this is Matt Mikuchi signing off. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile, and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. Hello and welcome to Fred Film Radio. I'm Amani Mohammed. Fred Film Radio, sono Paolo De Marchi. Pantanni, sono Sensei Musakshin, no, Fred Film Radio, sono Dana Knight. Clémence Ferrilatour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on fred.fm and smartphone apps.